So. Let's see what burning questions are. Could you please say something about how to <coughs> Could you please say something about how to deal with trying to too hard in meditation as relationship relation to fear how to handle fear also well trying too hard is um, you just have to uh, figure that out just know just observe that uh, always observe this kind of compulsive feeling uh, like trying to be mindful uh, and then you, you know you, you, you are you just be mindful you, when you try to be mindful then you you're not mindful and then just simply like, like wake up I'm trying to wake up you just wake up and the mindfulness is you just your, your mind is a state of attention but if you conceive mindfulness as something then you say I've got to be mindful and then you, you're trying and then be aware of that be aware be mindful of the feeling that you should be mindful <coughs> or that just bring into consciousness this uh, this uh, tendency to to uh, try hard to, to really um, you know observe this in yourself this, this having to must should uh, feeling so that more and more you begin to find a you know you go between the extremes of thinking I shouldn't try at all or I should Right, is one extreme. Don't put any effort into it. You just sit there and wander in your mind. Or <laughs> you got to put too much effort. But it's like, like learning to walk. You, you, uh, you know, when a when a baby's learning to walk, they, <coughs> you know, they um, hold on to things and take a step and then fall over but then through through picking yourself up and starting again you, you eventually find the balance so this is mindfulness uh, seeing getting to know the, the feeling of balance and right effort and fear is uh, of course uh, it's like fear has power over over you when you when it makes you frightened with if you run away you know if I can make you afraid of me I have power over you but it's but if you but if uh, if I try to make you afraid of me and you 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 aren't afraid then then I'm disempowered so it's just a matter of, of really uh, Learning to look at fear, to investigate, take an interest in the feeling of fear, and uh, study it, feel it, 
uh, examine it uh, until you till fear no longer has any kind of power to make you just run away like say fear this has this ability to make me want to get away as soon as possible and uh, and it uh, you know so it and, and if I do that then of course I I just perpetuate that problem but once I start really looking at fear start feeling it start accepting it then it it uh, it uh, doesn't it doesn't doesn't amount to much the uh, So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a common enough emotion, but it's a matter of ec- examining it, recognizing it. <coughs> I just like like walking on a glacier <laughs> or on a mountain. I just use the, uh, I can see, uh, you know, like I was saying last night, my staying in the sound of silence, I wasn't creating fear about the dangers that were quite obviously there. Because you're, you're actually in a maybe, you know, quite dangerous situation physically. And, uh, and then, then I create fear around danger. Or if I just stop the mind from thinking, then, then uh, the danger's there, but, but the fear doesn't... Uh, take me over so in dangerous situations one can uh, you know if you're mindful then they're not that you know you're not going to harm yourself but once you let fear take you over then of course it, that's the thing that makes you heedless and tend to uh, do things that, that might you might uh, harm yourself through heedlessness Any want to have any further on that on fear? Don't be frightened. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's so simple, you see, that it's it's like you think, well, how do you be mindful? Uh, should you, you know, put a lot of effort in, or should you just trust in the present, or you go on and on like this, and then, so then, it, and then, uh, sometimes when I first <coughs> I learned well, my first meditation was highly, it was a technique, this kind of Burmese technique where you do everything slowly. 
So I got this idea that to be mindful you had to do everything slowly. <laughs> and uh, and so that was, uh, and I thought, you know, if, if, if you have to catch the bus, <laughs> you can't walk slowly, you've got to, you've got to, to run maybe, you know, if you've got to get there on time, you might have to run for the bus. So mindfulness is the ability to, to, to be with the moment, to know time and place and what's appropriate, uh, rather than, than having a fixed idea that it's like it's doing everything quite deliberately and, and very slowly and, and, and very highly uh, a tech, using a, a technique. So then, just, just like, being mindful, being aware, that much. You know, then the, the mind is in a state of attention. <coughs> but if I, if I try to, uh, if I, if I try to put too much effort in, you know, then I'm, then I've, I've got an idea that I'm, I've got to do something special. And then, uh, then I, then I'm, I'm not aware of my own <coughs> kind of intentions. <coughs> Because uh, when you're a thinking person, you tend to be quite compulsive, obsessive in, in going about things. In meditation, meditation can be another kind of obsession of the mind. I've got to get my samadhi. That was the big thing. In the early days in Thailand, we were all got to get my samadhi. And uh, the idea was that you get samadhi. Everybody was going around, I've got to get my samadhi. And he got, I remember trying desperately to get samadhi and getting a headache. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I, then I, was, I was thinking, I was just about to get it, and then something would happen. And I think if I just held out a little longer, I might have gotten it. And, the, and there's, this, uh, there's so much of this kind of pushiness and willfulness, then, and even sometimes uh, through willpower you can get get a kind of concentrated state, but uh, it's not something that you can sustain, and so it it uh, it won't work again. You can't just will yourself to do to to uh, you know just use use a strong willpower. You might be able to do that to do certain things in the world, but for meditation, it, it's always balance, knowing, uh, knowing time, place, balance, the right amount, rather than just work hard and get your samadhi and and uh, don't give in to weakness and uh, conquer your kilesas, kill your defilement. Uh, don't give in any, any weaknesses. Uh, work hard, and this goes along with the old work ethic you know, that that many of us are burdened with. Hard work pays off, and that kind of thing. You know, you if you work hard, you get rewarded for it. You get your samadhi, 
as a reward. I didn't. I worked hard and I got a headache. <laughs> so it's it's learning the, you know the the balance of yin and yang and and the and the because uh, meditation is is more subtle than just you know getting getting to getting what you want or what you think you want. This one, who are the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings? Referred to in the recollections of the song. I explained this the other day. But this is one of the inspiring passages that spoke supposed to make you into a real Buddhist. Four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. What's that? I get this question every every retreat. Eh? <laughs> but uh, in uh, like the Sangha in this sense is those who, who practice like Supatipano Ujupatipano Jnana Patipano Samiji Patipano so this is uh, Supatipano Patipano means one who, who does it who practices in the right way or in a good way Supati- direct way Ujupatipano means direct practicing directly and then they then there's uh, four stages of uh, where they call stream entry is where you see the path the eightfold path for the first time then they have stream entry uh, once returner non-returner and arahant which is perfected one so these are these are uh, kind of standards, or they're dealing with with what they call the ten fetters, where you're kind of breaking through the the obstructions that um, that bind you to self-view, to rites and rituals, to to uh, doubts about the path. So in uh, you have in each stage you have what they call the path and its fruit. So you have the you have the knowledge of the path, and you have the and then you practice according to that, and then you get the result, the fruit of that practice. So there's the four pairs. So for each each uh, of the four stages, there's two pairs. There's the sotapanna maga, sotapanna pala, sakata kami maga, sakata kami pala. Anakami Maga Anakami Pala Aranta Maga Anahata Pala. So that's <coughs> eight kinds of noble beings. Four pairs, eight kinds. Now you understand. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the the the, the ten fetters, Sangyojana are are uh, like like the Sakayaditi is his belief in personality view, seeing your identifying with personality, the sense of yourself as the as a as a physical being, as a person. 
And so when you when you see through uh, when you when you've seen through that illusion of personality, then and then the Siddhapatabharmasa is uh, is attachment to convention, thinking that if you perform these rituals or you keep all these rules or you do it all this way, then that will somehow thinking that doing something on a conventional level, just that alone is going to uh, give you some kind of power or or enlighten you. It's like the uh, Pharisees or whatever in the you know the ones who believe that I keep all the rules, so therefore I'm a holy person. The kind of arrogance that comes through through uh, thinking that somehow keeping all the rules and and uh, all the rituals that, that somehow purifies you. But for most of us, it's, it's not a problem. We can, we, our arrogance, Western people's arrogance, is we don't need rules. We, we, we're arrogant the other way. We're attached to the view that we're so clever that we don't need all that stuff. Well, that's also Silapattabharamasa. Then, uh, then the Wichikicha's doubt. It's, uh, as long as you keep thinking and, and your, your mind is always in a state of doubt. So, uh, so doubt is, is to be uh, relinquished. So then you, when, when those three fetters have been examined and understood, then you have stream entry. You see the path, the way to practice for enlightenment. And so that is uh, that's the beginning, really, of the uh, path. Up till then, it's more or less, you're kind of, you don't quite know what you're doing because you're always in a state of doubt. You're attached to the sense of yourself. You're, you're, you're trying this technique and that technique and uh, the spiritual supermarket, yoga on <laughs> Monday, rebirthing on Tuesday, therapy on Wednesday, Vipassana on Thursday, Zen on Friday, Tibetan chanting on Saturday. <coughs> Uh, Sufi mysticism on Sunday. Where am I? <laughs> so, uh, so the uh, it's uh, these are insights. Like when you when you when you when you examine the like the the noble truth, suffering it causes the cessation. Then you then you. You, during that, then you, through that kind of investigation of the noble truth, then you have the insight into the path or right understanding, samadhi. Now this is this is uh, this is the formal presentation of say in, in Pali Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. Mm. Now you've got to. You've got to, uh, you know, recognize this as experience rather than just define the term. And this is where it takes, you know, 
like doubt itself. Like I, I'm an expert on doubt. I'm, my nature is I'm a I'm I'm a I've always been a great doubter. And when when you when people ask me to describe my character and say, am I a am I a aversion character? Oh, that's not too much of a problem. Aversion, anger, and hatred. That I think I'm kind of a normal amount of that. But I wouldn't say that's my dominant characteristic. They well, are you a lustful, greedy person, sensual person? Well, I'm normally kind of, you know, I like pleasures and that, but I wouldn't consider myself terribly greedy and lustful. Then what are you? I'm more like the, the doubting person. Never quite sure. Always can see the other side of every issue. I've got Jupiter and Libra. <laughs> so, so that that makes me a credible, you know, problem here. Uh, I can I can I can see the the left side, the 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 far left. Yeah, that they've got a point there. Then the far right. Yeah, that's true. And then <laughs> so I, I can't, I, I've always lacked a lot of conviction because people can convince me quite easily because I can I can shift sides and and get caught in their scene. Yeah, they've got a point. I, mean, I never thought of it like that. And then somebody else comes along. The doubt has been, uh, you know, when I saw this in. In practice, I, I discovered this even before uh, I was with Ajahn Chah. The first year that I was coming there, I saw this. I felt, you know, describe my character as one big question mark. I don't know what where I am. So, so then, then I then I started uh, contemplating this. Rather than 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 uh, making it into a problem, I I I've, I've read this book on uh, this, this, this Chinese master uh, had a, a kind of session in in Shanghai in 1959. They wrote it down in a book. Glad to have this book, and it was called "How to Develop Doubt as a Way of Practice." So this book. I just happened to have it for some reason, and, and I thought, yeah, this is, doubt is my way of practice. Since this is what I do most of the time, you know, I might as well use it for practice. So, so it, and they had techniques called development of the doubt, how to use the doubt. So you, you, you kind of make your mind always, uh, you put yourself in always a kind of perpetual question mark, which is very easy for me. So, and then you you keep noticing this. Uh, it's like the koan in in Zen, and that you 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 ask yourself in unanswerable questions. You know, when there's no answer, but it leaves your thinking mind. It non-pluses your thinking mind. So you, you think, I would use a, 
I'd have this insight into letting go through through contemplating the noble truth. I have this insight into letting go of the. I said, "How do you let go? How do you let go?" And then then my then I answer, "Well, you let go by letting go. But how do you do that? Well, you just let go. Well, let go. But how do you do it? And go around the. <laughs> so. So then I, I kind of use that as who lets go. And then that, then I can, you know, I couldn't. And then, and then they, they want you to notice that kind of gap when you ask yourself a question like that: who lets go? Then there's a, then there's a gap there before you, you, you start thinking of an answer. So your, your, your thinking mind is stopped for that moment. Who lets go? And then you really consciously notice, you make it all this, this gap. And so I use that uh, doubt as a, as a technique for practice. And when I went to, to uh, when I met Ajahn Chah, he asked me about how I was practicing. I told him, and he, he approved. He said, oh, that's very good. And, uh, so I, I was quite relieved because it was working. And, and, uh, but it is, is you know, it's like, like I've emphasized a lot in this retreat, noticing gaps or where the mind, thinking mind ceases and, and uh, the question mark or the sound of silence, all these are pointing to uh, experiencing the presence where there's no thought. So doubt then is, uh, it can be a useful thing. Mean, that's why I could become a Buddhist, because, uh, because in Buddhism you can doubt. In Christianity you can't doubt. At least not the kind I was brought up with. You're supposed to, that the devil makes you doubt. But, uh, uh, you know, the devil's really got hold of me. I can't. I can't make it on that, on that one. And then with Buddhism, then doubt is uh, is something you can actually develop. Uncertainty, not knowing. And those are mental states that we really don't like. Tell me, tell me what to do. That we'd like to be. We'd like to have, you know, what do I do now? I mean, you, everybody says, you know, you do this, and you do that, and, you, and on and on, have it all programmed out, feel a sense of security through, through uh, having, having a plan and somebody telling you each step. But when you're left in the state of nobody telling you, and you don't know what to do, then that, then you're beginning to recognize the, um, the emptiness of the mind, because awareness isn't isn't a thinking process. It's a it's an awareness. It's a watching. It's an observing ability. It's a reflective ability. So you can use thought, but it's not. But it's not a thinking. It's uh, thought can be kind of skillfully used to point at things, but the point is not to think, but to observe, to notice. So, 
So not knowing something is like this. Boom. Don't know. And then there's awareness. Then there's this feeling of, I don't know. Don't know. And then there's a, there's kind of a blank of space. But you know, there's an awareness of that. So you, you're developing the awareness. Not, not You're not trying to fill up the space with just another condition. I did a lot of, of contemplation of this visual space. So I, I'd contemplate, you know, how do you, cont- how, you know, you can actually see space with your eyes. But then it, it, it makes you feel a bit ill at ease at first because uh, space doesn't have any, it's just spacious, it doesn't have any other quality, you know, where where forms have, uh, you know, have have shapes and colors and they're defined and they you kind of give you a sense that you can really get them, you know, they're there, they're definite. And, uh, and, the, and this feeling of uncertainty, insecurity, space is just spacious. And, and we're not used to being spacious, we're used to grasping things. And our security lies in grasping of things or ideas or thoughts. So this this whole thing is being challenged in meditation, this grasping of things, uh, grasping of ideas, grasping of of uh, anything. People will grasp anything. It'll make them... People would rather grasp some really awful thing because they're so used to grasping than to live in the state of not uncertainty and insecurity. So people will settle for for horrible marriages and where where they swear and beat each other up and <laughs> and one woman her husband used to abuse her terribly. I said, Why don't you well, you know, if 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 somebody treated me like that I wouldn't I'd move out. And she but I I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, at least be getting beat up gave her a sense of, you know, she, she knew what to do about that. But to be, to move out of, of, of even a horrible situation that you're used to can be very frightening. So, so people will settle for, for mediocrity, for, for just perfunctory, uh, banal experiences in life because they're, they're, they're afraid to, to go out into the unknown, to, to take a risk. But in, when you begin to, to uh, uh, recognize this unknown, this <coughs> infinite space, the uh, uncertainty and insecurity, then this kind of knowing gives you a courage because it's based on truth. It's not, it's not kind of based on your ego, I mean, you know, pumping up your ego to think you're brave. It's, it's coming from deeper source than that.
Yes? Is um, transcendental meditation a suitable technique for Buddhist meditation? Uh, you mean like TM? Yeah. Uh, I don't know enough about it. Right, but that that probably be like um, samatha meditation, where you try and calm the calm the mind down. So, like like mantra is uh, when I first uh, at first I. I I did mantra because of uh, because of my obsessive thinking, and the kind of mantra they use in Thai Thailand is Bhutto, and and uh, it's a it's a mantra for the name of the Buddha Buddha, but they use Bhutto, and, and in Thai they pronounce it Puto, Puto, and 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 at first I didn't like the sound of it. You know, puto in English sounds sounds funny, sounds kind of comical. So, so even though they gave me this puto mantra, I it didn't arouse anything but a feeling of just I didn't like it. So um, because it sounded it sounded comical to me, like the word poo sounds comical, doesn't it? <laughs> so. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I couldn't use it, and and then um, so I, I developed. Uh, I d- I decided that I'd just make up my own mantra, which was "Let Go." So I, I used "Let Go" instead of "Puto," and um, because at that time "Let Go" meant a lot to me, because I was such a such a grasping person, you know, attached to everything. So. So let go, I'd use let go, let go, and then I'd use it with the breath, let go, inhalation, let, exhalation, go, and then I'd, then I'd use it for, um, like to, I, to make it interesting, I'd, I have a, a good uh, mind for visualizing things, I can make up colors in my head, I can see beautiful colors. Visualize colors. I'd have let go in kind of green neon lights, or <laughs> or pink, or purple, or anything. You know, just to make it interesting, and just to keep this letting let go as a kind of continuous refrain in the mind to stop the the tendency to proliferate and wander. And then. Um, so then I thought, well, let go works. I wonder about if you just use any word, you know. So I, so I, I, I was getting in a kind of, kind of. Uh, I thought, well, I'll try just Coca Cola. See what that does. <laughs> but so I did Coca Cola, it, it didn't work because it was it it. it it was too. Uh, I, I mean, I was, I was being funny, and 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 I couldn't take it seriously. 
So I realized you had to, it had to be something that meant something to you to work well. At least this is what I found. It had to, like let go really meant something to me, but Coca-Cola was just being facetious. And Puto, I hadn't quite, I hadn't enough, I, I didn't really know how to use that properly. Now I use Puto. Buto, I, I, that's my, that's what I've used for years. But it, at first, the, the, because of the aversion to, to it, I couldn't use it. Then um, I've just to. To stop the mind from thinking, I, I use uh, let, let go, let go, let go, let go, and I just keep it kind of, kind of just pumping it away, pumping it, let go, let go, let go, and keeping it bright and and sharp, so it doesn't get mechanical. Because mantras can easily go into kind of just mechanical, kind of let go, let go, let go, and, and you're not with them anymore. So you've got to you've got to really put the effort into keeping them bright and clear, and precise. And then, to, if you're a really obsessive thinker and your mind's just kind of really, you know, bringing up a lot of stuff, then I'd use it as a kind of really speed it up. Go, let go, let go, let go, and keep it kind of at a high pitch. Scream it in my head. Let go, let go. It's kind of screaming, let go. And then that would, after a while, that kind of, that that kind of agitated mental state would would stop, and then you could kind of tone it down, you know, bring it down a little, let go, let go. <laughs> <laughs> so you you can see how you you know how suggestible the mind is, how to how to uh, uh, you know develop means skillful means that work for you. Yes. I don't understand the concept of rebirth. Uh, if there is no self, then we die and we reborn. What aspect of it, of us is it that is reborn? A desire. desire. Yeah. Like if, if you, uh, if you, like Ajahn Chah, he was, he never liked to, to talk about like rebirth, like reincarnation. He was saying, he was talking about mental states being reborn in the mind, because that you can observe uh, directly. And if you study desire, you know, if you get to contemplate the, and, and investigate desire, what it does, it's always looking for like a womb to be born into. And and uh, so that that if you if you don't know desire, then you're then you're always then you're caught in it. You're grasping it. And then you're always looking for for something to become. So I used to notice that, like like uh, you know how how I would always be looking for something to do, 
like going back to my hut and I want to I want to do something I start picking up things just for something to do this desire was aiming at for anything to be born again to be uh, like uh, when I was a layman it was just eating a lot you know you, you didn't know what to do and you'd go to the refrigerator and you'd start eating something or drinking something smoking cigarettes or then then uh, it was, uh, as a monk, it was, you know, like reading books or, or doing things that was always kind of absorbing into something else because the state of pure awareness it was not something that I was used to then. So there was, there's always this movement toward, toward rebirth in some way. Uh, then, and this means just becoming you know, finding something to become, so that, or become interested. You know, like uh, I remember as a layman, always wanting to live an interesting life. Have been interested meant a lot. Have interesting lifestyle, interesting friends, read interesting books, study interesting things, and go to interesting places. To, so that life would be interesting. And uh, and then when life was interesting, then it was. You know, something something was wrong. So there is this endless kind of kind of looking for something interesting, and then and then you'd find you you'd get interested. You'd kind of get absorbed into what you're interested in, but then you can't sustain it. You can't stay interested. You reach a peak, and then you're no longer interested. So then you then the then you you try to find a rebirth in something else that in, that interests you. So it can, you know, move from from uh, reading a book to, uh, and you get you get lose interest in the book. Then you call your friend on the telephone, and then that finishes. Then you then you go and have a have a sandwich, and then <laughs> <laughs> and you eat so much, and then it's no longer interesting. Then you you know you you do something else until finally you get fed fed up literally fed up or figuratively and then you then you want to just annihilate yourself so you crash out into sleep and that desire to to not exist you know like to sleep a lot desire to that's the desire to annihilate yourself so this this you can call, you can apply that kind of like rebirth to mental states because there's nothing you know, there's no kind of real person there. It's just desire. You know, and but we give, we make it personal, but it's not when you really look at it. It's just different states coming and going. Uh, and so, but then, then because of memory and that and attachment, we we think we are a kind of permanent soul that will get reborn. And um, but then, in, then, but then it makes sense on the, in the terms of when you actually physically die, doesn't it? If you, they say that if your last desire determines your next birth. So imagine, you know, somebody dies, they have a desire for something, then they, they, they seek uh, that, that desire is looking for a place to be reborn in again, you know, a womb. You, say, you know, Something that that 
would give you, you choose a, a place of rebirth, something that you, that you find interesting or you feel attracted to, that you feel at ease in. So that's why maybe people choose an unwholesome rebirth, because at least maybe they've lived lives where at least they under, they kind of feel at ease within the within the kind of unwholesome situations, so that they 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 seek rebirth in those those kind of situations. That's now this is speculation, but but I notice in in terms of like when you when you become really frightened or insecure in this life, you know, when you feel depressed or or like death, you, f- you feel this fear of death and that, oftentimes that arouses a lot of sexual desire. You know, so, so that because, uh, so that, that people, you know, that oftentimes have a lot of fear of death and that, that become incredibly lustful, seeking uh, sexual relationships or obsessive sexual activities. And then, uh, or in some kind of, uh, or you can see how in, in drugs and 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 uh, liquor and that, how the, these things take away uh, the edge of of misery. You know, they can they can make you feel kind of boost you up temporarily or take away the the uh, the, the suffering kind of. Or reduce it considerably, because life is a tangible and, and normal consciousness. If you've not trained it through meditation, then it it just becomes so uh, unbearable. Life becomes so stressful. And remember, in the Tennessee Williams famous play "Streetcar Named Desire," that was a there's a famous Broadway play, and I made a, a film of it. And there's a very powerful scene in it that I remember, uh, where uh, about this aging woman who's in the South, American South, who, who's uh, you know she's she's getting on in years, and, and she and she hasn't been married yet, so she she goes to New Orleans to live with her sister, who's married to this kind of Kind of a brutish man, and uh, and uh, she and Blanche, uh, the the kind of main character, is tries to be kind of like act like a very refined person. She thinks of herself as kind of educated and refined, and yet she she obviously uh, you know wants a husband, wants to get married, and and yet they find out that that her reputation. Is what she wasn't find that she was carrying on kind of uh, sexual relationships with with boys, school boys, and she was a school teacher. And so this, and so they, this kind of brutish man confronts her about this, you know, kind of just, you know, taunts her and, and humiliates her, and then she has this melodramatic scene about death and desire, and she she had to take care of all her dying relatives. Or all her relatives die, and she took care of them. And she said, "When there's death, there's desire." <laughs> and that's always, that's always, uh, you know, that was I saw that when I was about seventeen years old, 
that 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 really made a strong impression, death and desire, because I never connected the two, you know, before. And then in in Buddhism, they um, I noticed that, and I, I you know because of the reflective nature of Buddhist meditation, then you, you know, I can see that. That, that the unknown death death is what we don't know isn't it it's say right now for us physical death is the unknown and that uh, we know we will experience it in the future the certainty the one certainty we have is it will die sometime in the future and uh, so that this, um, so death is, 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 say, is a state of not knowing what happened. You know, so people make, you know, they have various ideas about rebirth, incarnation, go to heaven, go to hell, or you die, it's oblivion, nothing, there's nothing to it, you, that's just the end forever. And uh, but the, the truth is that we don't know. You know, you might have a favorite uh, scenario, but in terms of experience, because we haven't died yet, physically died, then we don't know. So in meditation, what, that's why observing the cessation of like Third Noble Truth, you're learning to see the death of mental states and death of your ego, like uh, in your ego dies off in meditation, and it, and it, and sometimes you do you feel you know you feel a panic. I've gone through a panic stage where where I I, I felt I'm dying I'm dying you know even though I was physically healthy, yet yet I could see that that my ego was was very threatened by Buddhist by Buddhism and uh, by Buddhist meditation and and there was a strong and I felt a lot of, of sexual desire at those times when I felt, thought I'm dying I'm dying and uh, and the and then there was the one way to make you feel alive is like sexual fantasies or things, anything sexual it gives, gives a kind of sense of being alive and and uh, so it, it because it is a you know a procreative natural force of the body but but uh, as a personal identity it gives you know to kind of it, to get out of this death realm you, oftentimes that's one of the quickest ways to do it to 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 think about sex but the, but in terms of reflecting on it, you, you begin to to uh, see that that what does die is the ego's dying, and and then the the then the, this die before you die, like Ajahn Chah used to say, die before you die, and and then the, even in the Shakespeare, as a sonnet. Famous poem is, in death once dead, there's no more dying. Then I mean, you, even in uh, English poetry, you've got you've got this sense of die before you die. And then when you let everything die in you, your ego 
is dead and gone, what's left? <coughs> and, uh, you know, what's left? And it's not annihilation. It's bliss. It's purity, the true state of being. You see, but, but the ego is very much based on, on attachment and, uh, and on ignorance and attachment. So it gets, you can really panic. Uh, you, you know, emotionally get very frightened in meditation uh, because of when the ego starts dying. So these are things to contemplate well, before you physically die. And, and once you see that letting things die is just the natural way of that all condition phenomena is impermanent and not self, it's not you. So then you realize that you know, that nobody really dies. Bodies die, egos die, conditions cease. But it, it's, it's, it's not like not like it was before where you believed in, in, in all this as a kind of permanent you are this personality, this soul, this body, this is as a kind of fixed identity, that that falls away, and you begin to, you know, realize the dhamma and the deathless, realize the deathless reality, which is something you have to see for yourself. I mean, this is the best I can do with words, but but actual insight comes where, uh, you know, you you actually have that insight. In to about realize deathlessness in the present. Then you, then, then you're, and then you, 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 you there's nothing to fear. Death is just a, a natural process of uh, that's uh, that uh, you know is 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 uh, normal and healthy. There's nothing, nothing bad about it, and uh, and it, uh, and the idea of you know, like some people want to live. You know, I, I, you know, sometimes you read articles in magazines or in Reader's Digest or things like that where they talk about you know modern medicine stopping the aging process and where you can live for hundreds of years. That doesn't, that sounds horrible to me. You know, to live hundreds of years in this body it does not, does not sound like a, doesn't sound tempting at all. And yet some people, you know, really find that, you know, uh, very, you know, hopeful because they're so frightened of death and they're so identified with the body. Or these ones that want to freeze their bodies so that they can be unfrozen in some future time. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if they only could see that, 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 that it's perfect as it is, you don't need to, to uh, manipulate and, and, and do all kinds of things like that. To, because it's, uh, it's, 
it's coming out of ignorance and not not having really looked or examined experience you're just caught in ideas and uh, a lot and those ideas are distorted distortions they have also like uh, the six realms of existence this this I found interesting like this talk about re rebirth or reincarnation in the six realms they have like uh, the heavenly realms with devadas and angels they're kind of you know beautiful beings virtuous beings that that um, don't have much suffering in their lives they they just kind of beautiful and they music and everything's everything's beautiful and they, they don't have gross bodies like this they have ethereal bodies they don't have to go to the toilet or anything they just they, they just you know made out of out of ether and they're beautiful and they and they live for eons of years and so that's that's the heavenly realm of of Devada. then then there's the then there's the jealous gods the kind of titanic uh, uh, um, gods that that uh, are more like um, you know like clever intelligent beings that want power power hungry ambition so and but they're intelligent and they've got and they're, they're you know they're very they're quite big and ugly and uh, and they and they and they just they just can't stand the devas. They're always having wars with the devas. Devas are pretty and they're kind of singing songs and playing harps and <laughs> and then these uh, these kind of warrior gods, you know, just can't you know feel so jealous of that and w- want to destroy that. And then there's the um, after the then there's the um, Human realm, and uh, the human realm is uh, where you have a, a body like this. Uh, it's not. It's not ethereal. Uh, it's. Uh, it's getting. We're mo- moving more into the animal realm, uh, but we're we're not. Uh, we're, n- we're not refined like the devas, and uh, we're not uh, obsessed with with power like the. Asuras, but we, but our problems are just uh, more. You have you have a certain amount of suffering. You have, we can we can we have refined. We can be refined, or we can be very coarse. We can appreciate music of the devas and the the refinements of the of the senses and and, and the intellect, and we can also understand the power hungry ambitiousness of the asuras. Uh, and, and so this is uh, in Buddhism the the best realm to be born in is the human realm because it is it is a realm where uh, you 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 suffer but you can all but it's not just it's not like the lower realm so when you go lower than the human realm you get the animal realm the hungry ghost realm and hell so the animal realm is below the human realm and there that's mainly a realm of fear, survival. So you look at you look at the animal world, and it's pretty much 
a fear mentality um, based on survival of the fittest. And uh, and then the uh, hungry ghost realm is uh, the kind of uh, wretched beings that that uh, have kind of low desires that never get they never can be satisfied. So they picture these hungry ghosts. They have they have tiny little mouths about the size of the eye of a needle of a small needle, and then they've got these long skinny necks. They've got these huge stomachs, so it's like uh, you know they're they're all they're, they they're always hungry because they're all trying to fill up this enormous stomach, and they've only got this tiny little mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so this <laughs> these are like drug addicts and things like that, and they, you see a lot of hungry ghosts. You know, if you go to certain places in London, Amsterdam, and that you've got. You know, it's a mentality that that uh, is never never satisfied, and and it just it just wants some kind of gratification on a lower level. Not like assurers who are ambitious for power, but this this is just you know like like people are obsessed you know with sexuality, uh, where they, they never can get gratified through it. Or, or drug drug addiction. Then, um, then the uh, hell realm, which is the realm of, of uh, you know, misery, uh, where you're burning or freezing, and and there's just you know unmitigated pain, and humiliation, and and ugliness, uh, unrelenting. You know, so. So these are these six realms are are you know kind of picturesque ways of talking about our mind. You know, one can see them in terms of do they exist out there? You know, there are there hungry ghosts out there somewhere, and or are there devadas out there somewhere? But in terms of 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 experience, we can relate to all six of these realms in terms of our own experience. So you know you you can you see the devada in yourself or the or the ambitious asura or the human or the animal or the hungry ghost or the or the uh, hell uh, as you know this talking about the states of mind not not real realms so some some human beings live in hell realms you know just unmitigated suffering no no respite from it just depression and self-hatred and there's no no relief from it <coughs> or the hungry ghosts you know I, I, drug addicts always to me look like hungry ghosts to me and then uh, the animal kingdom just kind of <coughs> uh, procreation and eating and sleeping So you just live a life, you know, just eat and sleep <laughs> and procreate and and uh, survive somehow. Survival of the fittest. And then the human realm is a moral realm. We have a choice. We can we we have uh, we can choose to be moral. We can take moral precepts. So you know this is this is one of our great 
gifts is that we can all decide, like we did at the beginning of this retreat, to take the eight precepts. Uh, that we that we would um, choose to to limit our action speech so that we're not harming ourselves or or others. Uh, and so this is something uh, that that is, is that is the great gift of the human realm is is that we we can uh, choose to be moral to take to live within moral limits to choose to be harmless even though we can be very harmful and we have those kind of impulses and desires you know to harm or kill or destroy that we 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 choose to not do that you see so this is this is and the human realm also has this reflectiveness. We have a reflective mind. So that we can... And, and Buddhas are born into the human realm, like the... come in to actually live as human beings in this realm. So this is why the human realm is regarded so highly in, in Buddhism. And uh, I remember when I first heard this, I didn't agree, I thought, being human is a is a curse. That's how I looked at it. I thought, what a horrible to have a body like this, you know, and and uh, just this this uh, just a stinking body that just always having to do something with it, and it's painful and diseases and and uh, you know what a what a horrible thing to have to drag around for eighty ninety years. That's how I saw it. And then. Then, as I started meditating, then I began to appreciate that, you know, I began to understand what, what they meant by the, the, it's the fortunate birth. Because when you look at human beings who, who have life too easy, they're like David does, you know, they, 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 they don't have much drive to understand life because they, they, can, they can get by on just kind of enjoying things, the pleasures. You know, refinements and happiness and and uh, all the the good things of life, but many of us have you know have had to have suffered a lot. You know, so that suffering itself is what wakes you up. You know, like pleasure and happiness tend to make you dozy, but but pain and hardship tend to. You know, you have to rise up. You have to awaken to survive. So, and that's why in the Four Noble Truths, the first one is the truth of, of dukkha, suffering. This is a, and th- this is a way of contemplating the, the you know, uh, um, the the different levels of of say in your own mind. I can see hungry ghost tendencies myself. I can see, you know, hell. I've experienced hell realms in times, and and uh, so that that all these these six realms uh, are not, you know, it's not like something that that is beyond my experience. I've been very ambitious and competitive, like an asura, jealous of the devas. I like I like deva like things I, I like you know I like refinements and and aesthetics and and all that uh, you know I'm quite 
can, can get quite high on on beauty and things like that. So I mean, it it's uh, these these are are uh, you know experiences that I can relate to in my own uh, in my own mind. So in the, this life, you know, I feel feel very fortunate, and to be a an American who became a Buddhist. I think, how, how did that ever happen? <laughs> Still don't know how it happened. You know, here all the people that live in Buddhist countries don't become monks. You know, and they've got it right there. I had to go and kind of search for it because you know, it wasn't readily available to me. What is that about? <laughs> yes? When you were talking about suffering the other night, that personal suffering and universal suffering, do you think that um, some individuals do take on universal suffering as well as their own personal suffering? Well, I, I think, it, you know, it's very interdependent because you, you know, suffering is, you feel other people's suffering and you can, and that, that's why it, it, it does, it is frightening to be too sensitive because, because then you, 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 you know, you open yourself to uh, the, the realm of suffering and not just you know, just not on a not not necessarily on a personal level. So therefore, it's, that's why suffering should be understood rather than just. You know, otherwise we we do have to protect ourselves from it on a personal level because it it can be over too much for us if we're taking it personally. You know, it's like like it, 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 this is a, you know, and and modern, new age ideas are very much like coming to those kind of realizations of interdependence. It's not like I'm just totally kind of you know, uh, completely independent from you. You know, just uh, you know, I'm one person, you're another, and we're just totally separated. And, uh, and and identified, you know, as just totally two independent, totally separate beings. That's how oftentimes we see ourselves, and and uh, how the society sees sees the the population. But but when you look more closely, you realize we're we're all affecting each other. You know, we do. What, what I do in this does have its effect on other beings. That's why. That's why I want to be responsible for what I do because I, before I thought, it, I can do what I want. You know, who are you to go pass judgment on me? I'm free and independent, and if I want to do criminal acts, that's my business. That's not your business. Mind your own business. But then. Now I wouldn't say that. I think, yeah, my if I do criminal acts, that that's that's 
causing suffering on on all levels. You know, it's not that 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 it uh, you know that it, it isn't just m- me as an independent uh, being that I can you know it doesn't matter what I do because it's my business. But I see it much more now is that that uh, I don't want to increase the suffering of other beings. So I, I, you know, I have compassion. I want to take responsibility so that how I live my life is not increasing the misery and suffering of others. And any, anyway, it seems better to think like that than the other way. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more useful to me to feel connected to everybody than to feel I'm an isolated, independent entity. Because, uh, it, you know, one, because it, it brings out much finer qualities in me. That, that where if I just think of myself, I can do what I want because I'm totally independent. And uh, what I do, if I suffer, it's my, well, I just suffer, you don't suffer. You know, so if I make mistakes, I just pay for them. And, you know, it doesn't affect anyone else. But now I prefer to think that maybe it does. That, uh, you know, it is interdependent rather than independent. And then you realize that the goodness of people like, you know, like the Buddha, Jesus Christ, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, um, saints and good human beings who have uh, lived their lives for the welfare of others. And, and we're benefiting from those, you know, because of their goodness. And, and then we look at history and we see, you know, the, the tyrants and the mean-hearted uh, torturers and the evil beings that have, and, and uh, you realize how, you know, how much fear and, and terror and, uh, and that that they've caused. And they still, you know, one thinks of Hitler and you still go kind of, you know, you still, you know, that, that word is a word that brings, you know, fear into the mind. Just one, one man name. Fiona? Um, I was wondering whether um, celibate um, people were bound to not procreation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't knock it. <laughs> But, but I'm, I don't, uh, I've chosen celibacy because I don't want to procreate. Uh, so it's a vehicle. But, but, uh, I, you know, I'm nothing against procreation, but it's a personal choice. And if and if sexuality were merely for procreation, that's one thing. But it but it's gotten to be, 
you know, sexuality has become uh, becomes an obsession now, so that you, you know, it's it's not it, it becomes uh, something that people just use for distraction and and for exploitation and for thrills and <coughs> without being responsible or or uh, for what they're doing. So then you get all these these other problems in a society where, you know, you just, you just can't, you know, where the, the whole social structure falls apart because of, of just one, one becomes, a, you know, irresponsible and, 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 and exploitive. So you get prostitution, you get you know, all these things about pedophilia now, and, uh, and all kinds of you know ways of obsessive sexual activities that that cause uh, all kinds of suffering to people and and so this is you know maybe maybe it's important to be responsible for that for that for what we do in that way either through you know through to not just misuse uh, or just to seek seek, seek uh, sexual activities as a, as an obsession or just a, uh, an exploitation of of one's own body or someone else's, because it's in terms of respecting and and uh, in terms of of um, developing. Uh, Qualities that that uh, ennoble humanity, rather than just demean it. So the uh, I think I think celibacy is, you know, as a celibate, I think this is, most people don't, um, you know, they think that is, you know that. The, they really think that's perverse, or or they, or like like in the Buddhist world, they think I'm because I'm celibate that I'm saying sexuality. There's something wrong with sexuality. So so people assume that either I'm I'm afraid of it, or I've got something against it, or that I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so. So that the this um but it is uh it's a it's a chosen vehicle for reflection because <coughs> cel- one thing that celibate celib- celibacy does reflect is 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 that that drive the procreative drive sexual drive uh and and you because it is because of of the uh, celibate Life, then, and you have very, you can observe those kind of impulses and and uh, energies. But in now in the in the Buddhist world in the West, you get a lot of of uh, you know the monasticism doesn't seem to be one of the more popular forms. 
It's, uh, you know, I've been in England 22 years and it's, uh, the celibate life is not exactly taking off as a <laughs> fashion. And uh, uh, so that it is, uh, you know, because now they say the, uh, like in most Buddhist groups, they, they're, um, you know, they, they don't feel that, that celibacy is necessary or useful. So it, uh, it's something that I think uh, is generally misunderstood and, and not appreciated by most people. But in terms of my own experience, I can only speak from, from being celibate because the, and my meditation has been based, you know, been, 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 in, that's the vehicle, monastic vehicle. So in terms of, of being able to proclaim enlightenment through procreation, it's up to you to prove that one. Not up to me. <laughs> so I think. <laughs>